0: This is Dan Zhang with Subversity here on KUCI. Coming up, this is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the Regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. Uh, Today we're going to be looking back at the Summer of Love, the birth of Haight-Ashbury psychedelic era, and we'll be uh, airing an interview from uh, a discussion, actually, sponsored by the Commonwealth Club which also has a radio program, uh, and courtesy of this Commonwealth Club, which is in San Francisco, Commonwealth Club of California. We're going to be uh, airing this program called The Summer of Love at 40, which first aired last August. And on the program will be Paul Krasner, the founder of Realist Magazine, Wavy Gravy, an activist and clown, uh, Scoop. Niska, who is an author and radio commentator and former DJ with KSAN, and also the founder of the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic, David Smith. Um, and moderating the discussion will be Peter Finch, who is a co-host of KFOG Morning Show up north. And uh, today we also remember the contribution of George Skip Gay a doctor who volunteered his time at the free clinic in Haight-Ashbury. So let's go to this discussion, this fascinating historical discussion of the birth of the psychedelic movement um, and the Summer of Love in San Francisco at Haight-Ashbury.
1: To the weekly broadcast of the Commonwealth Club of California radio program, The Commonwealth Club is a nonpartisan public forum dedicated to airing diverse views on important topics of national interests. Today's program is made possible through the generous support of Adobe Systems Incorporated. Now we join today's program of the Commonwealth Club. Good evening and welcome
2: to tonight's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Peter Finch. KFOG Radio News Director here in San Francisco. It is my pleasure to introduce our distinguished speakers for our program celebrating the Summer of Love at 40: the Roots of a Counterculture. First up, Dr. David E. Smith, Executive Medical director of the Prometa Center for Addiction and founder of the haight Ashbury Free Medical Clinic) We also have with us this evening Wes Skupnisker, author, radio commentator, and former news director of the, well, the Jive 95, KSN Radio, back in the day. Also on our panel this evening, Paul Krasner, writer and founder of The Realist magazine. Last but not least, and we'll have to check the Commonwealth ar- Archives to see if he's the first panel to be resplendent in tie-dye, head-to-toe, activist, clown, and former frozen dessert, Wavy Gravy. In the summer of 1967, kids from all over the country converged on San Francisco and laid the foundation for a socio-political legacy. Forty years later, decisions made during the Summer of Love continue to have an impact on our lives. Music, drugs, and politics was the theme, and it all converged on the corner of Hayden-Ashbury right here in San Francisco, California. Tonight we take a look back through the haze at the Summer of Love, and please, one more time, welcome all our panelists, Dr. David E. Smith, Scoop Nisker, Paul Krasner, and Wavy Gravy. And I want to begin by having each of you um, tell us what you were doing in the summer of 67. I'm presuming that you were all here. I'm not sure, though. I know that um, Scoop Nisker has written that he came to San Francisco to be a bohemian, got here late, and was assigned to the hippies. So... um, Scoop, maybe on that note, maybe I'll begin with you. Uh, where did the summer? I, I know you attended the Monterey Pop, Pop Festival. I know that much.
3: That was that was my uh, introduction to San Francisco, California, hippies. I mean, not not actually hippies. I was living in Minneapolis and and hanging out with a small group of uh, people who were smoking pot and being politically active and uh, and you know generally make, uh, raising some uh, trouble. And uh, a friend of mine ran a magazine called Twin Beat, a rock and roll magazine. He got invited to cover the Monterey Pop Festival and he said, you want to go? And so we all pil- piled into an old Buick and headed um, for Monterey. And uh, we got here, and it was like heaven. Like we had, like we had finally found our our people, our home. It's like the promised land. And I remember going to the Monterey Pop Festival, and there was a uh, maybe a twenty foot high Buddha at the entrance, and people were handing out uh, corsages, or, uh, orchids to everyone who came. They they had shipped all these orchids in from Hawaii, and. And then after the pop festival, I went to the Haight-Ashbury and uh, never looked back. (laughs) Now, um, out of the corner of
2: my eye, when I mentioned, I presume, you were all here for Summer of Love, Wavy Gravy, I I may have seen you shake your head. Were were you still Hugh at the time or were you Wavy by then? I was Hugh. I
4: did not become Wavy Gravy until the fall of 69. Uh, I got that name from B.B. King at the Texas Pop Festival. He says, you Wavy Gravy. Yes, sir. (laughs) And he leaned me up against his amplifier and took out Lucille, and from out of the other side came Johnny Winter, and they played till sunrise, and it was everybody's reward for putting on their pants.
2: <laughs> Paul Krasner, summer of 67. Um, and I guess this question is both physical and metaphysical for all of you. Where, where were you at that time?
3: <laughs>
5: <laughs> uh, I was at the expo in Montreal Uh, had been invited to speak at the youth uh, pavilion and I was being interviewed by the CBC and a friend had given me a capsule of LSD uh, which had been distributed by the mafia so he wanted me to test it. And um, so I took it right before the interview on CBC and uh, this was in the middle of the Vietnam War and so I uh, said in the middle of the interview that I'd like to... um, burn my draft card now, and the guy got all excited interviewing me because he said, oh, we have a scoop. Uh, not you. Uh, 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 or or your flavor, for that matter. Yum,
4: yum, the dessert mantra, yum. And yum.
5: so... Um, oh, my, n- never give a straight line to a psychedelic relic. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and temple of accumulated error. And um, so I... Um, so I made the point that you know people would object to this, but it's just a piece of cardboard, and uh, there were actual children being burned to death by napalm on the other side of the globe, and so you had to be, remember the difference between symbols and flesh. So I just try to give it a context. And they had a marine guarding the American pavilion where I was being interviewed uh, uh, who had gone to protocol school. And, uh, but he wasn't used to, they didn't teach him about somebody taking acid uh, during an interview. So he called the captain and said, he burned his draft card, sir. And um, I said, no, here is my draft card. Because I had been speaking at a lot of campuses at the time and uh, had a lot of photostats stats made uh, so that I. <laughs> um, and so I, so, so the uh, lieutenant said, sir, I saw him, I saw him, I saw him burn his card, I saw him. I said, no, no, that was, that was a photo stat. And so the captain said, well, you know, a photostat, it's, uh, it's against the law to make a copy of your draft card. I said, yeah, what? Well, I burned the evidence. Uh, and anyway, just to, to uh, uh, cut to the end of that, uh, I, I called my friend and told him that although I disapprove of the mafia's methods and their goals, uh, they did distribute some pretty powerful assets.
2: <laughs>
5: Where I was... Uh,
4: Uh, was in Sunland, California. My wife and I had moved away from the whole scene, the dead, the acid test, all that stuff. We were leaving a bucolic existence in this little tiny cabin when we got the call that uh, they were doing a photo shoot for Life magazine of Psychedelica, and the pranksters and the dead wanted us to come in and pose with them. So we could... We just jalopied in, and uh, there we all were uh, posing for a cover of Life magazine, and Ken Babs steals the bus to join Kesey, who was on the Lamb in Mexico. So my wife and I suddenly have 47 house guests. (laughs) The landlord comes by and says, you can't have 50 people living in one room. You're evicted. And an hour and a half later, this is kitchen synchronicity at work, Paul. Uh, Bud Pelsu, a neighbor, comes by. Old Saul up on the mountain had a stroke that needs somebody to slop them hogs. And so we were given a mountaintop rent free if we would take care of 60 hogs the size of dinosaurs, and one of which. <laughs> We later ran for president. She was the first female black and
2: white candidate. We broke a lot of ground with a pig, yeah. (laughs) That was wavy gravy. Uh, uh, Dr. David E. Smith, founder of the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic, it wasn't a case of you seeking out the summer of love in San Francisco as much as the summer of love came to you as I understand it, you had inherited a home right there in the neighborhood, correct?
6: Yes, I have a very different background uh, than these uh, For the radio audience, he's the only, only one wearing a tie right, this right. evening. But it is a, it's a Fillmore psychedelic tie. <laughs> but I've lived in the Haight-Ashbury since 1960 when I started medical school and all um, uh, interacted and admired these gentlemen uh, uh, during that period of time. But I was doing drug research at UC San Francisco. I was a local LSD expert and was taking LSD and white mice. And then I would walk home at night. And I was also running the Alcohol and Drug Abuse Screening Unit in San Francisco. So I was there. In fact, at age 68, father of four, grandfather of three, I can remember 67 better than I can remember yesterday. It was (laughs) an incredible time. And what my recollections... um, that there was these hundreds of thousands of kids coming in and I I think one of the things that the audience must recognize is that Haight-Ashbury had a rich history way before the Summer of Love. I think that's lost in all of this recent uh, uh, expose. The uh, the Upper Haight-Ashbury was very politically active. They had the quote party people. Karen Talonan and his father were there. The late American labor movement started there with uh, Harry Bridges and my, uh, I'm so different in the background of these gentlemen because I didn't have one shred of political activism in my background. <laughs> I was a physician, scientist, aimed for academic medicine, but I got my education in the Haight-Ashbury because I would come home and there was Terrence Hallinan uh, from San Francisco State talking about uh, Mississippi Freedom Reg- Registered for Voting. Well, uh, you know, with uh, Paul and... And Scoop and Wavy—they knew all about that. I didn't. Uh, my grandparents were farm workers uh, from Oklahoma. It's the farthest thing in my wind, mind from its political activism. But I learned about segregated health care. That's where I got the idea that coining the term "health care is a right, not a privilege," which uh, I coined the starting of the Hate Ashbury Clinic. So it was an incredibly rich and fertile time, but. I remember coming home, and probably Wavy was there, because um, when when you talk with Wavy, he talks, you listen, and <laughs> uh, so. But it was like like this human being, and everybody was tripping, and there was Timothy Leary and Allen Ginsberg, and then there was uh, everybody's passing the electric acid Kool Aid test. He put LSD in Kool Aid. Remember, I was the one that said this is a very powerful drug and you got to be careful well everybody's putting it in the Kool-Aid and there was a guy in the back having a death rebirth experience and I'm going I went <laughs> something's going on here you know uh, it was a totally mind-blowing experience and I think the, the cultural history uh, is how it's impacted on the mainstream of society has been lost the first light show I ever saw was a simulated LSD experience by Dick Hamm the, just outside the Haight-Ashbury Bill Hamm, yeah. Uh, I remember walking down there, and uh, there's some old-timers that remember that. That was before all of this mainstream things, and it just it was incredible. And uh, that simulated the light shows with Bill Graham, was the one that did all the benefits for us. And I um, we went to the city and said, all these hippies are coming. They don't have health care. And they said well, we can't start a clinic because they'll just stay, and we don't want them to stay. <laughs> and I had learned from Terrence, Hall and Ann that that's not the right thing to do uh, after a spiritual experience I had. So um, they said, well, if you start a private doctor's office, you can call her anything you want. So 558 Clayton Street was the... David E. Smith, MD, and Associates doing business at the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic. And the Associates were some of the strangest Associates you've ever seen in your life. Um, And that was the beginning. uh, We had about a month's survival time, and Bill Graham, who I think history has not given him a fair shake either. He had a heart of gold. If you were on his side, he organized all our benefits. He's the one that, that got... Jefferson Airplane Creedence Clearwater Grateful Dead he's the one that basically did the benefits George Harrison Robbie Shankar he's the one that did the benefits to keep up Chet Helms please and Chet Helms yeah. is great too yeah. 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 yeah well Avalon and and the those things the that was the beginning of the free clinic movement that's now spread nationwide, over 2,000 free clinics nationwide. That was the beginnings of the field of addiction medicine. And I, I just want to make sure that the social action out of the hate doesn't get lost uh, when we're talking about the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the cultural aspects. Some of the credible things w- uh, went on there.
2: Very good. You're listening to the Commonwealth Club of California radio program. We're talking tonight with Dr. David E. Smith, Scoop Nisker, Paul Krasner, and Wavy Gravy, celebrating the summer of love at 40, the roots of a counterculture. And I can see already we're going to have trouble cramming all these great stories into one hour. It's almost like we should make this like Woodstock and stretch it out for three days, and rain can fall from the ceiling and bring towers. in mud. Oh, wavy, you might know Keep a little off about the that. towers. Yeah, there you go. All right.
5: And That's... be sure not to ingest the brown antacid. <laughs> <laughs> Will Billy meet Emily at the information?
2: <laughs> I, um, you know, we live at a time these days when parents and their kids are, are likely to go catch a Rolling Stones concert together, you know? Uh... 67, it was a very different time, and you were all, you know, by the time 67 rolled around, you were all adults. But for those of you um, whose parents were still around at that time, what did they make of of you, and and what was happening, and how did they handle it? Uh, Whoever wants to address that can.
4: I remember I used to go uh, to, uh, was it uh, Studio City, where my wife was... uh, shooting star trek and i'd be standing there in a suit believe it or not uh... usually reserved for halloween and uh... i had a a picture of a napalm child and a body count and people would spit on me they would just spit on me and i'd go home and scrape the spit off and go back the next day and and do it again and i remember that and i remember uh... Uh, toward the end of things when it was cranking down when we were, I was in Washington, D.C. to MC the impeachment of uh, Richard Nixon and there were uh, Cub Scouts uh, doing uh, Let's Sink Dick and uh, I was going to assassinate uh, Nixon actually with a Bic pen. They had an ad on TV where they would take a Bic pen and shoot it through a board and write with it and I'd say, Eat Bic, Dick. It's mightier than the sword. Pow! But Ramdas talked me out of his You must love Nixon and so <laughs> this was a challenge. And I got this uh, Nixon mask, this light-up uh, uh, dickhead. Uh, that, that, and I would smear a uh, tiger bomb on uh, Nixon's third It's like hippie Vicks on uh, Nixon's third eye. And I, oh, dick, dick, dick. And I started to laugh at Nixon. And it made it possible for me to uh, press on. Because laughter is like the valve on the pressure cooker of life. And either you laugh at this stuff or you're going to end up with your brains or your beans on the
2: ceiling. So there, yeah. Well, and the follow-up, I guess, getting back to the question, what were your parents? What? <laughs> so Scoop,
3: Scoop, I'll ask you, your folks, were they still back in Nebraska at the time? They were, and uh, no matter what I was doing, uh, all they would talk about was my hair, you know, of course. <laughs> it was, I once told my mother, you know, mom, I, I, I do smoke marijuana. And she didn't even, she she didn't respond at all. She just said, when are you going to get a haircut? When are you going to get, your hair, you look so strange with that. I had a Jufro, we called them, you know. And I could still have one if I, if yeah. I wanted. And Paul? Did, uh, well, I I tried to be honest
5: with my parents, and I told them I had just taken LSD for the first time. And she was very concerned. She said that it that it, uh, it could lead to marijuana <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and she was right <laughs>
0: um,
2: I've got all these great questions but we're getting questions from the audience let and, and me and just add one oh, thing yeah, I'm there. Sorry, I have a different,
6: again, a different perspective uh, um, it's not in conflict but my parents died when I was young I grew up alone my parents died in the 50s and that's how I ended up inheriting the money to buy the house. So I had no family, I had no parents, I had no brothers or sisters. And I think one of the reasons I identified with the hate is they became like my family. Uh, so I didn't have parents to criticize me because they were dead. And I recall my, uh, one of my professors of medicine when I started the Hate Ashbury Clinic said, David, where did you go wrong? You were always such a promising young medical student. So I felt ostracized by the medical profession. Now I'm honored at 68. Then I was ostracized, and these gentlemen—I remember Scoop Nisker at K San. They would have a—I don't know if you remember the scoop you had have the musicians down there, and they'd play the concerts, and they had benefits for us. I forget, you know, yeah, old timers. Yeah. I can't remember the guy's name, but he would—he uh, would go over the air, and he would, um, the musicians were like. There wasn't a separation like there is now. In other words, they felt, we all felt part of this movement, and I felt part of it, and it's probably why I was so crushed when things started to go wrong, because this became my family, and these gentlemen accepted me, accepted all the people like me, and uh, I had a role there. If you, you saw the Pulp Fiction, the Harvey Keitel film, I was the cleaner. In other words, they'd have the parties. There'd be blood and brains all over the place. They'd call me in to clean them up. Um, and we took care of the um, all the kids at the concerts, uh, uh, Rock Medicine, Glenn Rasnick, Bob Student, all the people. So we were the ones that took care of the casualties. But again, uh, Chet Helms and Bill Graham said, we have to take care of our own. It was a very different spirit then. we got to take care of our own, and we were the ones that took care of them. So uh, I felt a real bond uh, to them as this huge extended famine being part of this movement
4: Rock Med is still rocking you know yeah. still rocking
2: well and, and also Dr. Smith you know there were a lot a lot of you know there was a lot of tragedy there in ter- be it you know related to drugs or whatever but also in a moment of levity back in the green room the story about uh, the different names could you share that with us
6: <laughs> well they were talking about I think Paul was uh, rumpled Foreskin on this. uh, And so I said, well, you know, when they first came to the clinic in 67, the guy would come in, and he'd had a good acid trip, and he'd be, you know, like Moonbeam or White Rabbit, and then he'd have a bad acid trip the next day, and he'd be Harvey Schwartz from Cleveland. And we said, please call yourself the same thing every day because we can't find your chart. So it was a very, very strange time.
0: (laughs)
5: Uh, Everybody changed their name every day. <laughs> but you know, I think I saw some of your mice dancing at the Fillmore. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they were smiling.
2: <laughs> Doctor Smith has uh, has mentioned Bill Graham, the Lake Concert promoter, and and actually we had an aud- an audience question for you, Scoop. Do you have any favorite
3: Bill Graham stories? I used to be mistaken for Bill Graham. Uh, <laughs> really, I'd walk down the street and people would say, "Hey, can I get some?" Tickets to the dead concert, you know um, do i have um, no i always I always had a really good relationship with him I, I liked him a lot um, you know I saw him in in difficult situations with a lot of people, and you know he he would blow off sometimes, but i, I had a good I had a good connection with him okay wavy yeah, bill only yelled at me once it was at the Uh, Us Festival, we were calling it
4: the Dust Festival, and uh, uh, I was uh, looking at uh, getting the trash picked up. It was starting to get dark, and I uh, discussed it with Bill, and uh, uh, Jackson Brown had finished his uh, set And I had hog farmers grab uh, garbage bags and start cleaning up, and I'm feeling really smug because we picked up the trash, and I'm coming off the ramp, and Bill says, Who told you to do that? He was going to do an encore. I said, Bill, you told me that. And Killer looks at me and says, don't ever mess with the show. <laughs> and I was better. But the next day I saw him, I said, Bill, you still mad at me? He says, my rage is only for the moment, my friend. <laughs> yes.
2: Well, and... It's funny because, you know, we're commemorating the 40th anniversary of the Summer of Love here. On the 20th anniversary, I was interviewing Bill Graham and I, I brought up the anniversary and he, he really uh, dismissed it, oh, that was, you know, a media thing, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, and I suspect he'd be saying the same thing now. Uh, in your mind, you know, the Summer of Love, it, it was a, uh, you, we've read stories that by then the magic had already kind of left the hate. But uh, would any of you care to comment on that?
4: i like to say that I I bopped down. I had uh, some kind of a speaking engagement and was uh, walking down the Haight, and I saw the Digger Free Store, and inside is a a little swing in the window, and this uh, beautiful African-American girl, maybe five, six years, was swinging back and forth in sunbeams. And I went inside, and I'm just watching her swinging back and forth, and this whisper voice comes in my ear and says,
3: You want to help
4: and next thing I knew, I'd been folding clothes for five hours. And uh, want to help came out of a guy named Emmett Grogan, who started the Diggers. And whenever I try to get something going for Seva or anything, I try and evoke uh, Emmett's. Want to help? And sometimes it really works. And Emmett comes down and
2: woo. Yeah. You, you just mentioned Seva, uh, and that was a question from the audience. And here's your chance to plug your foundation. What, uh, how is that related to the, uh, you know, the summer of love and the whole vibe there? And tell us a little bit about well, the Well, certainly,
4: Foundation. uh, I rely on the same musicians. The Grateful Dead has been our house band pretty much for 30 years in one form or another. And the uh, Airplane and Jackson and Crosby Stills and, and Nash and all those kind of folks were working on curable and preventable, uh, blindness in third world countries. We've done over two million sight-saving operations, and we also work uh, bringing potable water into uh, Central America and Chiapas, and uh, in Native American, we uh, have uh, taken on diabetes on the American Indian Reservation with garden projects, talking circles of elders, and bringing back the buffalo, and they've actually named a stud buffalo after me, Wavy Gravy. Oh yes, i not just ice cream and a pretty face.
2: You're listening to the Commonwealth Club of California radio program. Our guest tonight, Dr. David E. Smith, Scoop Nisker, Paul Krasner, and Wavy Gravy, celebrating the Summer of Love at 40, the roots of a counterculture. And here's a good question from the audience. I'm paraphrasing it, actually. But um, is Burning Man the love child of the Summer of Love? Everybody's thinking about that one. Wavy leaps
4: to I, the microphone. I really, really uh, got off at Burning Man. I, I just, it just tickled me. It was like, uh, it was like all these lights and things flashing, around. it's like uh, suddenly somebody plugged in uh, the Rainbow Gathering. That's what it kind of reminds me of. Suddenly they were given electricity. <laughs> It was just, uh, and everything is, nothing is sold, and, uh, you have to carry out everything you bring in, and there's a lot of beautiful people, uh, Jose Anguele said it. He said the flowers blossom and humans art. And these humans are arting all over the desert floor. It's just magnificent.
2: Scoop Nisker, I think you were going
4: yeah, to add something. I
3: was going to just say that I think it's an extension of, of the Summer of Love and that feeling of community that people really yearn for, uh, both community and celebration. And I think that's a lot of what the Summer of Love was about, just as a moment of a, of a movement of, of people. Uh, the first Human Be-In was held in 1967, um, and it was a celebration of just being, uh, which was so uh, unusual, you know, in in uh, in America, where everything is about doing and what you can accomplish and how much you can, uh, you know, make. Um, and here was a whole group of people, the children really, of affluence, saying, "We're just going to celebrate existence. We're, we we want a uh, we want a different consciousness, you know." And it. that that experiment continues I think to this day well again
6: I have a different perspective this is Dr. Uh, Smith I don't get Burning Man (laughs) Uh, and I guess one of the things that troubles me I get Wavy Gravy I get the hog farm I so much admire what he's doing in third world countries but what I've seen is a split between culture and social action Uh, for example uh, one of the things our our Smith Family Foundation supports is a free clinic in the commonwealth, a common ground free clinic in New Orleans helping with the poor and hurricane ravaged area and a lot of the volunteers come from um, San Francisco imbued with the spirit. In fact one of the things that was most moving to me was a woman down there working and she says well my mother used to volunteer at the Haight-Ashbury free clinics and that's how I got this spirit. So they like music, but music is not what drives them. And then Burning Man, to me, I mean, is kind of like a party, you know. And that's not the way it was in the Summer of Love. It was was that... Not that there's anything wrong with parties. No, no. No, All all I'm saying is that the music transformed your life. It was the driving force for attitudinal change of people like me. That then translate that into social action, and now it's the music's over here with agents and big money, and the social action's over there. So I um, I view Wavy Gravy and the Hog Farm and what he's doing as as separate from Burning Man as night and day. And I'd like to see more Wavy Gravy and less of uh, a Burning Man. Mm-hmm. Huh.
2: Wait, uh, Wavy, you wanted to add something there? But I'm,
4: I'm just saying that there's, there's all this other stuff going on. The concert for the earth was fantastic. All these uh, uh, cities all over the planet kicking it, uh, and try, the, the album to uh, save Dafur, that, uh, uh the stuff that Bono was doing. I'm just, I, the stuff that's coming out of Al Gore and that whole revolution. I'm feeling that this is the time now. It's happening again, and it's happening now. And uh, now it's all there is.
1: You're listening to a broadcast from the Commonwealth Club of California. Become a member of the Commonwealth Club and support the club and its radio broadcast by visiting www.commonwealthclub.org or calling toll-free 1-800-933-7548. That's 1-800-933-7548 or commonwealthclub.org.
2: Look, looking at our audience tonight, I, I, I would uh, assume that for many tonight's program is a trip down memory lane. For others, it's a history lesson. And and for the latter, um, we have a question from the audience uh, about the, the military angle, the military connection. They write the uh, San Francisco Bay Area was a huge staging area uh, for the Vietnam War. Young men were being sent uh, there from all over the country and... Needed to party. Hippie icons like Jerry Garcia, Hendrix were veterans. I think Country Joe was as well. Um, obviously, we've got a, a war going on right now. Uh, this action in Iraq, and I don't know if any of you would like to relate to what was happening with Vietnam and how that related to the Summer of Love during the summer of '67. Anybody
6: want to field well, that? Again, I have one comment there, uh, Doctor Smith. That the anti-war movement was everything. Uh, Here is a total non-social action guy from UC Med Center marching in an anti-war protest. Probably Wavy was leading it and I was in the back, but that was so out of character for me. But you're talking about the protest against the war. One of the uh, unknown parts of the Haight-Ashbury was the Vietnam vets against the war came back and settled there. Country Joe McDonald was the musician. Uh, Glenn Rasnick, who became head of rock medicine, was a Vietnam vet. Jack McCluskey was a uh, a medic, uh, and these individuals had been traumatized by the war. They settled on Waller and uh, uh, Steiner and Waller, no Waller Street. I know where it is in my mind, but uh, and there was uh, sword, swords to plowshares. And then they came to our Haight-Ashbury Clinic drug detox facility. Now, this is a history lesson for people in the audience. You read about all that rehab in the the paper. In 1969, when we were detoxing addicts, it was a criminal offense. I was committing about 100 felonies a day because I was detoxing addicts on an outpatient basis. Well, the vets came to our clinic for detox. How did that detox get started? A Credence Clearwater benefit by Bill Graham. And then suddenly... The government started wanting to give me grants and I said, what's going on here? Two years ago you tried to arrest me and now you want to give me money and we're doing the same thing. Well, it's because those vets came to the clinic and the government said, we cannot put our boys in jail for getting strung out in a foreign and a popular war. That's how we got all those federal grants. So we can talk about the anti-war movement, and these gentlemen were much more involved in it than I I was, but what troubles me is how we ignored the vets that came back traumatized. You can be for, against the war, but there's soldiers over there getting beat out, strung out, and I agree with Wavy. I think 2008 is going to look a lot more like 1968, because we're already treating those vets come back. I mean, how do you think you'd drive a tank for three days? and not sleep. You take speed. And the speed's been given them by the military over there, so they can be better soldiers. But they come out here and they, they're, they're traumatized, brain damage, getting loaded, and I don't hear any discussion about that. In fact, I hope uh, the equivalent of Vietnam Vets Against the War gets started. I know that that uh, Glenn Rasnick, uh, when the Vets come back, he goes out and greets them. So I'd like to see some some of that, some some I'm for the war, I'm against the war, I happen to be against the war, but our troops are getting beat up and massacred there, and the VA is doing nothing for them. Mm. Paul, yeah. uh,
2: Paul Krasner, you wanted to address this as well?
5: Uh, well, it, it, uh, I, I do know for a fact that the uh, military was uh, uh, sensed and uh, researched and realized that the counterculture was a threat to um, uh, because the counterculture was essentially against the Vietnam War and, and uh, were not uh, likely to want to participate in it. Uh, but I want to go beyond that because the, uh, it wasn't just the war. The counterculture was a threat to the American economy. Uh, they had think tanks observing and extrapolating and could see that Uh, young people were uh, making their own clothes, they weren't buying them, they were sharing automobiles, they didn't get insurance, they took care of each other, Uh, they used candles instead of uh, light bulbs, and you can go down the list of all the things that added to the notion that this was not going to be the consumer economy that they needed. And... um, And so there was a a government attempt to neutralize the counterculture. I've been doing research on this. Somebody's trying to set up an interview uh, with me to talk to a former FBI guy who was in what they called the hippie squad, Mm -hmm. uh, where they taught him such things as how to roll a joint, uh, the, the better to infiltrate communes. And uh, so uh, it, it was a threat beyond uh, – they weren't even re- on a religious level. You know, uh, young people uh, were uh, leaving relig- Western religions of control and uh, becoming involved with Eastern uh, disciplines of liberation. So it was, it was a threat to the country on a lot of different levels besides uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll.
6: I'd really like to comment on that because everything he says is true, and you find it hard to, you find it hard to believe. The F- these FBI informants infiltrated the, the free clinic movement. I found this out later in the Carter administration when I happened to see my dossier, and I was branded a communist, and all I was trying to do was take care of poor people without charging them. And what they did was they, they did everything Paul said, but the part I did that they would come when we were organizing the free clinics. I was president of the National Free Clinic Council, and they would play lefter than thou. Whatever you did, they would say, Storm City Hall. Don't, they'd do everything they can to disorganize. And these were uh, FBI informants because they didn't want the free clinic movement or anything to organize. And so uh, it's almost like every conspiracy that you can think of, it was worse And I imagine it's probably happening right now. And people try to organize. They try to deliver health care to poor people. uh, They try to organize anti-war movement. I mean, this was before Watergate when uh, probably their tactics were, were, were quite primitive. But I saw in writing FBI agitators that did this thing that Paul said and acted like free clinic workers and played the left than thou game, and I never could figure out why we couldn't uh, organize. And now I realized it wasn't the free clinic workers that couldn't organize. It was the FBI informants' agitators that disrupted it. Mm. I want
2: to do you, just show of hands do you all think you've got an FBI file out there that's at least a couple pages long yeah yeah okay oh, yeah. oh and in the audience too oh, yeah. <laughs> Wow and wearing it like a badge of courage aren't we yes I'm sure <laughs> I'd like.
3: Oh, Scoop Nisker wanted to. I, I wanted to uh, connect with what Paul was saying about uh, it being more than an anti-war movement. Uh, that the Summer of Love and the, and the whole hippie movement was was really a lot more than just anti-war. In fact, the hippies were not quite as political uh, as people think. Uh, it really was a spiritual. I think, revolution. And partly it had to do, and I think if there's any legacy, really, of, of the hippie, it is in the all the meditation and yoga centers all over the, the country now, and it is in the environmental movement, the ecology yes. movement. And it may have been... It may have been uh, instigated by the drugs, and I think the drugs certainly had something to do with it. Seeing a different vision of reality, understanding your consciousness in a different way, experimenting with uh, the new psychologies that were were starting to emerge in the 60s. Um, it was... After taking you know some substances, it was understanding the delicate nature of the interface between human and other species. It was understanding that you live on a planet all of those things got there were seated all those understandings were seated in that time and it's not it wasn 't just a you know drugs and rock and roll and and, and music and anti war that there there really was a, a core see change in, in the way people regarded their consciousness and, and uh, reality. Well, and let me, let me use that as a lead into the next
2: question. And, and Scoop, you probably gave half of your answer just then. Uh, but I'd like to go down the panel here and have each of you um, address this question. What is the best thing to have come out of the Summer of Love? And what is the worst thing to have come out of the summer of love? And
5: uh, wasn't that a YouTube question? <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> Today's USA Today poll. Uh, yeah, uh, I guess uh, wavy gravy will start with you. Well,
4: the, the Sharon and Karen part is the best thing. It's the interconnectedness. we realize that we're all the same person trying to shake hands with ourself? And that's quite a task. And war is a very complicated way of getting acquainted.
2: And the worst thing, uh, just hippies
4: dying on smack. A bunch of dead hippies. My friends,
5: Janice, Jimmy.
2: Ouch. Yeah, Paul Krasner.
5: Uh, I think the best thing was the sense of community, because a lot of people who were the only freak on their block suddenly came to Mecca here and and realized that it was it was like coming to a Martian convention. And, um, and, and, um, and I, I guess the worst thing was the exploitation of that sense of community uh, by people who wanted to take advantage of uh, a whole community that was filled with trust. And, uh, and when you find trust, if, if, you, if you have an agenda, you try and, and take advantage of that trust. So that, that was the worst thing, I think. Scoop
2: Nisker.
3: Well, I, I just said uh, that I thought... You know, environmentalism, the the ecology uh, movement, really was the best thing that came out of out of that time. I think uh, uh, the worst thing, I think, is a sense of idealism uh, that we fostered, a, a kind of um, naive idealism that we really thought we were going to change the whole system around in a you know. Within a generation, we, we it w- there was a lack of patience and a lack of kind of understanding the long-term nature of of real change, and I think that that kind of false optimism that that we had it lingers into a, a kind of a, a, it turned into a kind of a, oh the the hippies didn't know anything you know they were just these silly people running around saying give us the world and we want the world. We want it now. You know, I mean, we actually chanted that, you know. Can you believe that? We had no exit strategy. Yes, <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> so anyway, I think that's, that's the worst thing. Okay. There's even
4: an active movement that we had going to buy back the earth and give it away so it wouldn't be for sale anymore. And we bought... Uh, I remember 700 acres in Norton, Vermont, which was just recently uh, the feds tried to seize it, and with the help of uh, Howard Dean and Ben and Jerry, we turned it into a state park. Uh,
2: um, and and Dr. Smith, uh, I mean, you know, you were there treating a yeah. lot of folks, a lot of the casualties. Yeah. But uh, in your mind, the best thing. The in The best,
6: world. I think, was the merger of music, culture, and social action. Uh, Scoop has already mentioned many of the things that came out, the environmental movement. But remember, the gay rights movement came out of that period, the women's rights movement. That uh, I'm, I was treating criminal abortion at San Francisco General Hospital. And then suddenly the, the women and uh, uh, the uh, pro-choice said, no, the world has to be different. And Janice Joplin got us to start a women's needs center so we could take care of the women uh... She just lived a couple blocks away from where we were um, so that was all very exciting and positive and continues on today with the free clinic movement wavy gravy's work the worst for me were the drugs uh... I, one thing i've learned is that any movement fueled by drugs is doomed to failure doesn't mean i'm a carry nation uh... you know drug conservative but uh, I want to just quote country Joe McDonald. He said, we got everything right but the drugs. And it turned into speed and heroin, and it went down the tubes.
5: And but don't you think, we were talking before about um, the infiltration of the movement. Where did those bad drugs come from, I think, is a question that has to be explored.
6: Well, I, I don't know where it came from. All I know is that it was a disaster.
4: There's a big difference between smack, crack, and smoking flowers.
6: Well, I say you've got to qualify your saying, drugs. I'm not saying where it came from. All I know is that I remember Timothy Leary lecturing his turn on, tune in, drop out, or turn on, tune in, drop out, and then we took him over to see some bad trips. He didn't want to see it. You know, He doesn't want to see the casualties. So there's the good side and the bad side, but we dealt with the bad side. And when I was just down in New Orleans with all these young uh, idealistic volunteers, I say, I'm not I'm no conservative about drugs but I say beware of alcohol and drugs and they are. Can much, I, and can I
2: ask, I don't know if anybody will want to address this, was there any uh, redeeming value to the drugs done during the counterculture movement before the drugs were bad, uh, when the, before LSD was illegal, did it contribute to a mind expansion, uh, or would the mind expansion have happened without the LSD?
6: Let me start off with that because Dr. Smith. <laughs> I took LSD and had a spiritual experience. I don't want to romanticize it. I have four kids, three grandchildren. I know parents are concerned about it, but I would not have done, I would not be here today, and I would not be doing what I'm doing if I hadn't had a spiritual experience with LSD. No doubt about it. There's no question that the, to some of us the psychedelics were incredible, mind-altering experiences. Scoop talked about this nature, bonding with nature, seeing the air move and anything. Well, maybe he knew about it before he took acid. I didn't. And uh, it changed my entire life. And it bonded me with the music. The problem is, it for me, it. I didn't do any more and actually I quit drinking and now I'm in AA and 12-step recovery. But for a lot of people, it didn't stop. In other words, if you could say, take the psychedelic experience, have a spiritual experience, change your view of the world and stop, then we could keep the good. But the problem is, particularly with the young people, they don't stop there. And I don't know what the answer is. I don't have any answer to the drug problem other than the fact that I uh, just read in the newspaper now that the Afghanistan is turning out a record crop of opium. Heroin is skyrocketing. The overdose deaths are skyrocketing. The military is protecting uh, heroin traffic so they can fight against the terrorists in the East. It's just like Vietnam all over again. And we have to uh, question that and, and hopefully learn the lessons. I don't know what the lessons are other than addicts have the right to care and we need to um, include them in our responsibility to help people and figure out why why so many good things went wrong
2: uh, Wavy did, or Paul did he uh, wavy wanted to say well, something.
6: i was just uh, I just
4: heard him mention the music, and I think that something ought to happen to honor. Uh, we made this Bill Graham Civic. Uh, there ought to be something for Chet Helms. At least a, a,
2: a boulevard, <laughs> something. And uh, on our on our radio program on on KFOG Radio last week, uh, Scoop Nisker proposed a tomb to the unknown hippie in in Washington. Is that right?
3: Not a tomb, a, a, a statue. Oh, okay.
2: <laughs> but, uh, you're listening to the Commonwealth Club of California radio program. We're talking tonight with Dr. David E. Smith, Scoop Nisker, Paul Krasner, and Wavy Gravy celebrating the Summer of Love at 40, the roots of a counterculture. Um, some have argued that the counterculture movement helped... End of war, the Vietnam War. Uh, some have argued that the counterculture movement helped get a rotten president out of office. Move to present day. Uh, there have been some large anti-war demonstrations, but we haven't seen it to the same degree uh, that we saw in the 60s and 70s. Is it because there is not a mandatory draft these days or are there other reasons Paul Krasner wants well, I, to address this? Well, I definitely
5: this? think it's partly, uh, and, and the uh, administration knows that. That's why they don't want to have a draft. That's why they keep redeploying and redeploying and redeploying these uh, uh, military people and they come back uh, uh, crazy, crazy from from fatigue and oh. and insanity. Um, I remember uh, uh, last year, uh, Latinos in Los Angeles—a million people came out in the streets to protest uh, what was going on with uh, the immigration situation. And um, you know, and, and the reason why, uh, when there was a draft, uh, students ran around with lapel buttons that said, "Not with my body, you don't." Uh, And so if there were a draft today, they know that there would be more people on the streets. And and my thought is that we should hire guest marchers from Mexico to do the job that Americans (laughs) don't want to do. (laughs) And uh, wavy gravy. No, I
4: just remember how many tens of millions of people that we put on the streets all over this planet that were totally ignored by the administration. I mean tens of millions. And the young people are really, really against this war and are now uh, beginning to show it electronically instead of with their bodies in the streets. And I think that's very exciting.
2: Do any of you ever get back to Hate Ashbury, stroll the streets? Uh yeah, I know, Wavy, I saw you at a Ben and Jerry. I saw lids one day. on the
4: corner, but they were be- lids to my ice cream flavor. Ah, okay.
6: <laughs>
2: Anybody For
4: camp else? Camp scholarships, yeah. yeah.
6: I do every morning at nine A. M. Yeah. <laughs> I still have the Haight.
1: <laughs>
6: walk my dogs and I I can walk to every place I've lived and worked in the last forty seven years in the Haight Ashbury. And if you want to join me, uh just be at Frederick and Clayton and I walked down to Ashbury, <laughs> down by the Grateful Dead house, by Janice Soblin's house, past the clinic with my dogs. I was very thrilled that Tom Brokaw joined me on the, my dog walk. <laughs> and the thing that was very exciting is that he said, well, David, I interviewed you 40 years ago. You look a lot older now. And I said, so do you, Tom. And We're all <laughs> a lot older. And I, my uh, twin grandsons who are here tonight, Alex and Ash, and my daughter Sabri, and uh, my wife Millicent were with us, and we're in front of the Haight Ashbury Clinic. And he he has grandchildren, so he held one of my grandsons, and he threw up all over Tom's coat. (laughs) So um, I have many memories, but they're not. It's not the past for me. The Haight Ashbury is a very present reality. Um, and I'm very interested in these gentlemen's perspective, including the outside perspectives, as to why when the health care system is crumbling, we're in this foreign and a popular war, uh, we've got an administration that this is totally insensitive, where is the protest? I don't know that, I'm not a politician, I don't understand it, but where is the protest against going on? In 67, the same dysfunctional elements were happening and there was large protests. Maybe it was what
3: Wavy said. Maybe the protest is over the Internet.
2: I I, I think Scoop Nisker wants to address that. I
3: I think that there is an economic factor uh, that we really were, uh, it was a a generation that came into affluence. Uh, America had just become a superpower. We've certainly wasted our power, uh, you know, quickly, but we, we had just come of age as a superpower and the youth could, I mean, you could, uh, you know, live on very little, uh, get a job, earn a little money, take a year off. You could. I mean, we, we would go to India when I got involved in studying Buddhism and uh, go to India for a year. Come back, work for six months, go back for another i mean we, we were we were the kings of the world and uh, in terms of you know uh, wealth and, and, and uh, freedom and I think now the crunch of uh, economic uh, the economic priorities and the young people are getting careers and they want to get established and there 's a lot of fear involved and you know there 's not a, as much room to experiment and hang out for a while and explore your your dreams and your consciousness. I think that has a lot to do with it. Let me ask... Go
2: ahead. (laughs) I don't know if if any of you want to address this, a lot of people, as they get older, they become more conservative. Uh, I don't see that with with this panel so much. Why is that so? Why have you stuck to your 60s ideals?
6: Let me just mention one thing. I don't see that... Um, for example the agent of change for healthcare in the United States is not youth anymore it's the elderly. I, I was just um, a couple years ago I was awarded the senior worker of state of California. I stand before you as a senior worker of the year. And I said in my talk uh, don't trust anybody under 60. <laughs> <laughs>
4: <Because, laughs>
6: To me, the, my generation are the ones that are saying, let's change things. Let's change the health care system. The elderly are becoming active in terms of health care reform. The question is not where the seniors are. It's where the youth are. Um, and, 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 again, maybe I've romanticized that period. But what I have seen is the, the people that went through that period got a spirit And they may be retired now, and they may be teachers now, and they may be software workers now, or, uh, you know, a Silicon Valley worker, but they have that spirit, and they want to change things. Somehow or another, the youth haven't, haven't gotten the spirit except in very limited areas, and I don't know why.
2: And I'm going to, sorry if anybody else wanted to address that, maybe afterwards with the audience, you can. Unfortunately, we've reached a point in our program where there is time for one last question, and I've got this big, thick stack here of questions I didn't get to, so sorry to the audience members, but I'm sure you'll agree we've covered a lot here. Uh, the final question is this uh, for each of you. Um, a single favorite memory that sticks out uh, from the summer of love, 1967, uh, wavy gravy. I know that's going back a ways, but do you have a, a, a favorite memory?
4: Uh, a memory that just popped into my head is uh, um. um Bouncing ahead a little bit to the uh, to the moratorium, and uh, Pete Seeger is on stage uh, singing. Uh, All we are saying is give peace a chance. And Mitch Miller jumps on the stage and says, "Give me a C of V's." And everybody's swaying back and forth. And uh, Abby Hoffman leans over and says, "They got Norman Luboff in the wings."
3: <laughs>
4: and I says, "Abby, we don't need to do this anymore. Middle America has taken over the peace movement." At that moment, a bunch of doves and one of them pooped on my third eye. <laughs> Abby says, there's your answer.
2: Okay. <laughs> Paul Krasner, a favorite memory from
5: uh, Summer of Love? Well, uh, um, the backstory is that I was a virgin until I was 26. Uh, and then the sexual revolution came. And I remember I was on Hate uh, Street and uh, walking along and I saw a young woman across the street who I thought I remembered as an old friend and I waved to her and she waved to me and she came across the street and we were talking a while and I realized we had never met before but I got laid anyway
2: (laughs) (laughs) And I can't can't believe in this one hour program that's going to be the only reference to free love Uh, uh, uh,
3: Scoop Nisker, a favorite memory Well, it's hard to uh, separate uh, one thing out of that uh, that melange of wonderful experiences. I think uh, listening to Ravi Shankar at at Monterey Pop Festival when I was uh, on LSD and and swaying with a with a uh, you know a whole circle of people and just feeling like all the cultures are coming together. All you know, love is in the air. It really we really are a. a, a uh, going to make a big change in the world. It's really peace is really going to happen. It's going to work. You know that that feeling, and I had it many different times. I think through that year was just, you know, sweet. Okay. <laughs> and the last word will come from uh, Doctor David. My favorite Smith.
6: memory is June seventh, nineteen sixty seven. 1967 haight hey, Dashbury Free Clinic opens up, has my name on the door, David E. Smith, M.D. and Associates. had had $100 in our pocket, and 250 young people were lined up around the street. How in heaven's name did they even find out we existed? 24-7, and I felt now my life has meaning, and that is an incredible memory. Joan Baez was singing in the waiting room. Music was all over, and I thought this was the most incredible time of my life. What a great way to end this show. Our thanks
2: to Dr. David E. Smith, Scoop Nisker, Paul Krasner, and Wavy Gravy as we celebrate the Summer of Love at 40 and the roots of the counterculture. We also thank our audiences here and on the radio. I'm Peter Finch, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California celebrating more than a century of enlightened discussion is adjourned.
0: This is KUCI, Subversity Show. We just aired a program from the Commonwealth Club of California looking back at the origins of the free love movement, the psychedelic movement, and the origins of the counterculture. This is Dan Zhang signing off for Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine.